Hello and welcome to the Airline Business Podcast, discussing key news and trends in the global airline sector. This time, airline profits stronger than expected over the summer, but is this sustainable? Governments agree on a 2050 aspiration for net zero flying, but what happens next? And Latin American carriers have recovered sharply, but will familiar challenges halt their progress? My name's Graham Dunn, and joining me is Airline Business Editor, Lewis Arthur. Hi, Graham. We're hot off the presses of airline reporting season uh, and on results season, which included a, a glorious Friday in which we had <laughs> three airlines, uh, an Airbus, a yeah. Safran, all in one day. So that made yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it kind of gets very intense exposure to lots of commentary on our most recent quarter. So, so yeah, that that um, yeah, we would rather they didn't do it all in one go generally, but. Uh, creates a few logistical challenges for us, but it certainly yeah, means you come away from, from a very short period of time with a pretty strong view on what, what's going on in the uh, in the industry. And what's going on is that, you know, for all the challenges, the nightmare challenges they've had and the challenges that look as though they're on the horizon, this has been a very successful and profitable quarter for the airlines. It has, yeah. So we're talking about the July to September period, which um, obviously from our point of view in Europe, would be would be the strongest period. But you're right, what, what we're seeing at the moment is really, I think, it stands in a really stark contrast to what we've seen over the past uh, couple of years during the pandemic, where we were you know, covering an industry that has an outsized impact from, from external factors in terms of basically having to shut down at points during the pandemic. So you go from that to a point now where actually you know, a lot of people are pointing to some of the unhelpful economic factors globally. But it seems actually that the airline industry, as I say, in contrast to what's gone before, is actually quite upbeat. And even looking into the winter, which we know would tend to be a, a challenging time, even in, in the best of years for some airlines, they were pretty optimistic and you know, looking forward to, to what next year will bring. They still talk about not having much visibility. There's a, throughout this whole pandemic, the booking window has been very short. Probably the caveat is that there isn't much outlook beyond the end of the year. So, you know, what, what you didn't see was airlines putting their head above the parapet in terms of what 2023 is going to look, look like. Mm. But certainly in that, after these massive, strong profits in the third quarter, you know, there was a very similar message, which was, we know there's uncertainty out there. We know there's inflation, recessionary fears, interest rates, whatever it is, but we're not seeing it in the bookings yet. And, you know, albeit that's maybe only for the next two, three months ahead. But all of them, all those carriers, which had largely plotted this return of capacity growth path for the year. And I think pretty much everyone was on or about what they thought they would be doing. Like you say, the um, 2023 outlook hard to, to measure at this point. But yeah, the Carsten Spohr, for example, um, Lufthansa Group CEO, was talking about this summer just gone hasn't satisfied that big pent up demand from COVID. So he sees some spillover from that to next year. Yeah, as you talk about, yeah, fuel prices, for example, we know are a big challenge for airlines as well in the current environment. But it does seem, I think, that. Another thing that came across from a lot of, in Europe particularly, I think in North America, we a lot of airlines, you know, yields have been really good and, and to the point where they are offsetting that big impact from fuel in particular at the moment. It's quite interesting. I mean, I think I, did, I wrote up Delta Airlines, which is the first airline in, in the world that reports uh, their figures. And, you know, I thought, oh, well, the league on this is going to be there's record revenues. This is not just record revenues for the quarter, but the record revenues full stop. 
And I thought, well, look at this, you know, we are ahead of COVID. This is back on that growth path. And sort of increasingly, as every other airline broadly did the same. And of course, what used to happen pre-COVID, it was, of course, revenues were always, not always, but pretty much always at a record because it's an industry that's growing. It's growing, you're increasing that additional sort of economic cycle of it. But it was refreshing. You know, we have been looking at reporting revenues, at, you know, maybe at 90% or, or for some airlines just about tipping over the edge. But it's, it's remarkably refreshing for an industry that has been absolutely battered mm. to be looking at, at record revenues. But the other bit that's sort of remarkable about it is record revenues on capacity, largely not anywhere near back to where it was, especially for the big international groups. Because Asia isn't back up and running yet because of well-publicized operational challenges when people had to pair back some of the plans for the summer. Actually, people were at, I don't know, 80, 90% of capacity. So you're finding that well, you've got these high revenues being achieved on capacity, which is much, much lower than it than it had been. And so that does say a lot about the strong yields or fares, <laughs> essentially what people are paying, that people were able to command for this. Yeah, and that is probably a theme. I mean, again, going back to Carsten Spohr, and I think we've talked about this before, but he he's very big on this idea that capacity generally is going to be constrained in, I think, the global industry and the foreseeable future. And that environment, as you say, when you combine that with, with that pent-up demand for travel, there are other factors you touched on there, but that there are reasons why I think demand yeah, may continue on that upward trend. You know, you've got business travel coming back. You know, most groups talk about it's sort of about 70% of what it was, certainly in Europe. Um, there's a sense that there's momentum there, and that is it's not going to settle at that level. It's it's ticking upwards. As you touched on, Asia hasn't, as an international uh, sort of long-haul destination, hasn't come back anywhere near the strength of other markets. So looking into next year, certainly the bigger European airline groups are thinking, well, you know, we've had really strong results here, but in six months' time, we might have a much more substantial Asia network, which again, you know, with constrained capacity would probably bring about decent fares, decent yields on on those services. So, yeah, there, there are reasons why that, that these groups can see, you know, despite the headwinds, that actually the momentum is still there for, for the growth in demand looking in, into next year. Can the airline industry completely avoid these impacts? I suppose we look, we're, we're talking last week in particular, was quite a lot about the big groups as ever in the, in this industry and probably in others as well, it's probably the tear down that are going to feel these impacts more maybe. Finnair's result was out on Friday, but of course they are, I've got a particular set of circumstances at the moment that's incredibly tough for them with the Russian airspace closures. But there, there, there are, you know, airlines in, in Europe and elsewhere that, yeah, things aren't looking quite so rosy for them. You know, and, and I think all eyes then go to this fourth quarter ahead where, you know, there will be more capacity. People are gradually ramping up capacity. The more aircraft are coming back. The airports have a bit of those that were struggling under the capacity caps and they've got a bit of leeway. I mean, at uh, Heathrow, for example, they, they can lift the cap, but that, that's partly because, you know, on the one hand, they're sort of ramping up. On the other hand, demand drops down a little bit in lower season winter. There is the opportunity then for capacity to steadily increase. And the impact there will be interesting to see what kind of impact that has on whether airlines can retain those kind of loads. I think what you did see, the message did seem to be that yields will remain strong, not as, you know, I think there's a recognition that this summer was a, was a bit extraordinary in terms of having constrained capacity and unbelievable demand. You're probably not going to get quite those levels of it, but like I say, I think out of the airlines that, that we cover, uh, it has been pretty much universally positive. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And 
in within the individual groups as well, um, uh, looking at Lufthansa, for example, some decent results across the board, saying Air France, KLM. I mean, KLM, you know, despite the, the huge operational challenges at Chipol during the summer and ongoing, um, you know, fairly healthy uh, operating profit for the third quarter and, and you know, some optimism going into the fourth. So, yeah, as you say, despite um, even when so some of the, uh, when we were in the middle of the operational challenges, for example, you fear the worst, but kind of we're waiting to see what the impact of this was. But these high fares, high yields have certainly cushioned that impact and gone beyond that, I think. Yeah, and, and I think, uh, you know, looking at some of IAG's results, there was also sort of a normalisation to some extent of pre-pandemic levels. So, you know, in that group, Iberia had been the first to make profit again. We've seen Spanish Airlines in that group because of the, the, the restrictions or the easing in Spanish uh, pandemic restrictions relative to the UK and Ireland had sort of led the way in success. This summer, despite BA having, you know, some high profile issues at Heathrow, and despite being carried out of that group that had the lowest amount of their capacity back still, you know, they were the biggest profit maker in that group. It's definitely interesting, you know, I, I find when, you, you know, looking at an airline group that has kind of interests across those markets, makes it interesting and Vueling, which is the Spanish low-cost carrier and just, you know, increased its operations at Paris and at London Gatwick, quite sort of classic pan-European low-cost uh, carrier business. And it is interesting to see that one is faring very well, which does tie into what we would assume to have happened, uh, where low-cost leisure demand is really driven the recovery dwelling already back above pre-pandemic levels, actually was the second most profitable airline in that group in the third quarter. And I think that's kind of seen... I mean, Air France KLM were, and I think Ben Smith was talking about Transavia being quite a positive op- option. Yeah, because they obviously they with a union agreement in 2019. The, before that, Transavia's growth was capped, but now yeah, they're much freer to expand as required. And as you say, I think uh, Ben Smith was talking about in terms of growth opportunities within the group, and he also talks about consolidation, which is another topic that came up a few times this time round. Uh, but certainly with the opportunity to grow Transavia, France, he was talking about potentially looking at operations from secondary cities in France, within the region, within Europe, as, as an area where there's there's lots of growth potential for them. So yeah, clearly in entering that kind of market, you are going to go up against the, the big low-cost carriers in Europe in some cases. So there's an interesting dynamic there. But certainly there was a level of, of confidence in, in what the, the leaders of, of certainly some of these groups were saying compared with yeah, when we think we were a year ago, it's um, it's quite an astonishing turnaround, really. Amidst it all, that uh, is cargo, which had been, yeah. you know, the lifeblood of the industry, which people have been talking up, and airlines have been talking up, just sort of quietly. It's you, yeah. Quite, oh, yeah, 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 that's kind of, it's doing all right, it's doing all right. Yeah. And in sort of real terms, it, it's doing all right, but it is, I guess, to some extent, a victim of the success of mm. the return of the passenger business. And also some wider symptoms in the cargo market. Like you say, it is a victim of its own success and it's gone through a record year in 2021. So compare anything against that and it's not going to look so great because there were unique circumstances last year, like issues with shipping, um, which meant people had to turn to air cargo. Um, Some of the supply chain challenges that meant the speed of air air travel um, for for moving goods um, became necessary in some cases. So there's been a moderation there and... And this year, I think, is still on track to be uh, one of the best years ever for air cargo. But compared with last year, it's going to be down. So, And we know that air cargo is viewed as a bellwether of wider economic challenges. And I think over the last few months, 
yeah, the year-on-year -year figures are all down in terms of demand. So yeah, and, and as more belly capacity comes back online as well, airlines, the yields maybe that they've been enjoying are falling a bit as well. So it's a curious one, because like you say, we, we went through a long period of nearly every earnings release, uh, press release that would be leading on <laughs> cargo <laughs> revenue, you know, 180% of 2019. IG's chief Louis Gallego was, was talking about during the pandemic, there was the decision of where you might fly aircraft was in some cases being driven and dictated by, is it a good cargo market? Because that could actually make that flight uh, profitable, you know, whether you had passengers on it or not. It's something you could, cho you could choose where you wanted to fly and you would choose, you know, they, they would be operating to Asia, uh, which is a strong cargo market, because that was the business case in itself. But obviously, once passenger of business comes back and then that, you know, it generates that much more of the of the revenue from it. That starts calling the shots a bit. So, you know, there's an element to which it, it kind of there's a there's a new equilibrium arise. Yeah, because I, I do remember you know, you're talking talking to some airline CEOs during during the crisis, and they, they were going as far as saying, look, in future, cargo is going to be much more important than those kind of network decisions. As you say, now we're seeing yields like 25 percent above 2019 levels on the passenger side. I think in most cases, maybe that that car goes back down. To, to where it was in terms of decision making, but yeah, no, it's it's an interesting dynamic, and you know, in the, certainly, um, yeah, the, the airlines I covered last week, the the cargo was back down, sort of as the the note, the, the last couple of lines of the press release is, um, it's, it's still, you know, when they compare it to pre-crisis levels, revenues are still up, but the story is not about that. But despite that, what we have seen is continued interest in adding more cargo aircraft in converting aircraft that hasn't sort of there's been no let up in that i mean parts of me did think well you know once we get to this stage especially with the lead time needed to bring these aircraft in but you're still seeing um ellen's commit to aircraft yeah certainly and i think one area of the market i think that's particularly interesting is e-commerce where um, unlike a lot of areas of global freight airlines offer perhaps in some markets the only answer to getting your uh, e-commerce goods over borders and even within large countries uh, at the speed that people expect now of buying Amazon or mm. buying off Amazon using Prime, whatever, where it's next day or same day delivery, that kind of thing. Um, unlike some areas where, you know, airlines are very much beholden to, you know, shipping rates. If, if they go up, maybe suddenly people mm. start looking at airlines. There is this area now of e-commerce where airlines can perhaps own a bit more of the, the market without that constant kind of ups and downs that come with there being alternatives available. I don't want to overstate that. Yeah, we all know that you know, e-commerce was growing rapidly pre-pandemic. Clearly during the pandemic, it had a big surge. I think um, there's almost been a sort of leveling off since that pandemic surge. So, you know, we've, we've heard like FedEx who are by many measures, you know, the biggest cargo carrier in the world, they're warning about you know, some of the outlook, and even on the e-commerce side of things. Um, um, but I think talking to people in the cargo industry recently, I think a lot, you know, there's a kind of a recognition that the, the rise of e-commerce is kind of a long-term trend that will be beneficial. And I think that's like you were saying, that's why we're seeing continued interest, particularly on the, the smaller aircraft conversions. So even, you know, Embraer, the E-Jets and, you know, 737s, A320s, pretty um, busy conversion lines there with some sort of decent pipeline of orders. So, you know, again, in the thinner markets there, you know, that demand for moving e-commerce quickly is a positive trend. I think pre-COVID, it was around 15%, I think, of the air cargo market. I haven't seen the recent figures, but certainly it's, it's there's a lot of optimism about that area of the market and what it, 
what it can mean for airlines. So something, something to watch as we move through the decade, I think. And with a beautiful segue there, uh, something else to watch as we move through the decade, this decade, the next decade, the one after that, is around aviation and its battle to get to net zero flying. After the break, we'll uh, talk about a sort of a landmark step, but also a question as to what comes next after that. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not sign up for our free weekly airline business briefing delivered direct to your inbox every Thursday. You can register for our weekly briefings together with any of Flight Global's other newsletters for free at flightglobal.com forward slash newsletter. So welcome back. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest stories that's been across the airline industry for several years now is around cutting emissions, making this industry far more sustainable. And everyone has really, for several months, years possibly, talked about, oh, well, ICAO is going to be the important next step. And ICAO, which is this global meeting of governments and states, uh, they had their uh, General Assembly in October. They do these every three years. So there's a big build up to it. And they did make a commitment. And it is a big step. Although on the one hand, it sounds a little underwhelming, I guess. Overall, I think it was good news. I think the the key thing was that there was an agreement. So Mm. the the content of it is is important. But broadly, um, it was good news. What it essentially does is theoretically align governments with the ambitions already stated by airline and wider aerospace industry, etc. So which is essentially net zero by 2050. It's really important that ICAO in particular does that because, as you say, it's a a meeting of governments. So when we talk about some of the the challenges to getting to net zero, airlines can't do it on their own. In wider industry can't do it. So it needs that government support. And it's a global industry as well, the airline industry. So there's a real big fear, I think, when it comes to sustainability that airlines in certain regions they all know they need to do something on this, but what they don't want to be disadvantaged by being ahead of another region. Um, yeah, the costs will go up, for example, or maybe the regulatory environment is particularly draconian in one region and, and not in another. So in an international industry, that clearly is not, not going to be uh, popular with the airlines affected by it. So yeah, that, that's the key thing, really. I mean, talking um, to people in the industry, you know, it's, it's about having that stable policy environment. So everyone knows where they stand, what everyone's aiming for. On a very basic level, governments are kind of saying we want to do this as well, which is important. Um, just you know, taking that responsibility and investment as well, because when we look at what the industry, airline industry needs to get to net zero, there's going to be a lot of money involved over the next coming decades. So having a stable environment and you know, potential investors knowing that governments are committed to this alongside the industry just just helps on that point. Absolutely. And, and and it's weird we've had to come to terms to this new uh, short form of LTAG, I think it is, long-term <laughs> aspirational goal. Um, so it's non-binding, it's not, um, mm-hmm. you know, but to some extent, I suppose you have to, you know, when talking to some, some people in the industry, you know, they, they do point out, you have to remember where the states were. You know, I think as, as journalists, we quite often are waiting for what's the big step, what's the big announcement. If you view where the chances of agreeing that, that joint commitment 18 months two years ago to achieving that it is a big step uh, you know and I think that is sort of encouraging but I think it speaks a lot to the challenge this industry has that 
actually because it's a sort of a it's a non-binding commitment it's very easy then for, and and also because it's very difficult for airlines to do anything today yeah. or tomorrow yeah. even to affect things the criticism this industry gets from uh, those people who think the industry should be taxed or you know it should be working harder in this it doesn't solve any of that because actually for this net you know the next year the next two years three years it, it's difficult to take massive steps towards achieving that goal it is yeah and um if you look at some of the criticisms of you know constructive in many cases of the l tag as it's been agreed one point is it it doesn't really have many uh kind of give a trajectory for for how you get there it's very much we will aim to to get to this place but like you said there's a big gap in between where where a lot of the work needs to happen so yeah that a fair point in that regard and as you touched on there is no obligation on individual states to meet that kind of 2050 as a hard and fast target obviously the, the good reasons behind that for example if you look at india or some other country that said developing countries you know, might reasonably point out that it's a bit unfair that you know lots of developed economies are now saying <laughs> now we've de-industrialized we're, we're quite happy to try and get to net zero by 2050 you need to do the same you know, so there are different speeds more widely in terms of how different countries are aiming to get to 20, uh, sorry, to net zero. You know, these aren't easy wins. You know, mm. there's a lot of work goes into something leading up to ICAO to get to the point where so many countries will, will agree to something. But could be running out of those, those things now. We've had, you know, probably a couple of years where there have been multiple industry level agreements, obviously, including IATA last year with the, the net zero 2050 target. Now we've had governments <laughs> and, you know, that, that keeps the, the kind of narrative uh, momentum going a bit longer. But we're sort of heading into an area now where it's going to be a bit harder to prove that progress. You know, most people expect 2030 to be the kind of critical point where certainly if sustainable aviation fuel is going to do as much heavy lifting, that's not a <laughs> terrible pun, as, um, as people want it to do. That's kind of going to be the tipping point where if it's not really kicking in around then we maybe not not going to be an industry saviour it's a big challenge and it's interesting i think that actually you the states they do find they're approaching having difficult decisions or they've got to do something so it's so it was interesting with i was at a euro control event just before ikea resolution came in and people are, are arguing quite legitimately that actually single european sky which nobody's been able to do for 20 30 years for, because of the political impasse on it i mean arguably that is almost easier <laughs> You know, if you're a European government, you've got to consider, well, do we spend this money on helping to subsidise SAF in a way that makes uh, affordable? You could do that, or or maybe you, maybe you decide it's easier to go and, okay, well, let's do single European sky. I mean, I don't think they will, but, but it is interesting that there is a point at which they are going to have to do something which is quite hard work and is going to involve a big investment whether that is a financial investment or a political investment exactly yeah and that, that as you say the airlines know that's coming and um, to a point but the, the huge commitment is needed on on the wider industry and the, the government side of things i mean who knows yeah, now they've signed up for this net zero push or however you want to frame it yeah that the, there is a point where they're gonna have, and this is all part of guess why this is important because now governments have 
essentially you know, sharing this responsibility. So at some point they are going to have to put the money where the mouth is. And that, like you say, if, if anything's going to make single European sky happen, for example, it could be that, you know, if it, if it is right that that will cut 10% of emissions in on international travel in Europe, then it is much harder to resist. When we look at the airline industry, as much as we know that on SAF, for example, we need the fuel industry to do a lot, the government's still a lot of policy regulation investment. We also know that the people are going to get it in the neck. In some cases, you know, that's part and parcel of being an airline, but a lot of the focus is going to be on the airlines themselves. And so no matter how much they might reasonably point out that they're doing you know, what they can to address this and other people need to do things uh, like they are, but I think that PR battle is, is going to be a tough one because no one looks at, you know, airline A and says, oh, the government should be doing more or the, you know, the fuel industry should be doing more to help that poor airline. You know, as much as that being so close to the industry as we are, we might think, there's might be reasonable to an extent to say that we we all know where the focus is going to be so yeah that, that that's a really really tough one yeah uh, yeah a lot of airlines are aware of this and it's kind of becoming just fundamental to everything they do on the yeah as much as safety is everything an airline does is about safety i think the more you talk to people involved in this area of the business you know safety and sustainability so every part of the business is making decisions it's just that the ones that are really going to switch the dial a, a, a way off at the moment. You were um, at a conference in London covering this issue in quite a lot of detail. I was at a, an event in Buenos Aires. I think I maybe got the uh, better end of the deal there. Um, and what was interesting about that, so that's covering the outer airline leaders, which covers Latin America. And I think what was interesting about that was, again, obviously that sustainability was you know, firmly on the agenda. One of the sort of narrative shifts that was being put there was there is an opportunity in, in Latin America, for example, for that region to become a kind of a leader in SAF. And this feels to me as though it's one of the shifts we've seen in the messaging now in terms of how the industry is trying to get governments to buy into the, the possibility there is that actually, you know, clean energy is going to be the future industries in one form or another. So I think there is something in that where they're trying to convince governments or, or encourage them to see the opportunity to become a leader in that field yeah there's um i think someone described it as the democratization of the fuel industry and the airline sector you know it's it's not quite a clean sheet because clearly you need feed access to feedstock there's advantages clearly in having refining capacity already but as a general rule there is a as you said an opportunity for governments to move in the right ways on this to really become a regional leader if they get the um, the SAF decisions right. It certainly does open up, you know, we know the traditional oil producing countries or regions, but, you know, it opens up the possibility for, you know, governments, uh, the governments really commit to this. There is the possibility, yeah, because, you know, if we're going to need a lot of this stuff, if it's going to be you know, responsible for, what is it, 60% of the uh, net zero push by 2050, it's it, it, we're going to need a lot. Certainly in Latin America, knowing that region reasonably well myself, we we know there that there's opportunities, but it's also a region where I'm sure boy, they had people talk about some of the uh, challenges around different regulations in different countries, high taxes on fuel in Brazil is, is a very common uh, point there. So as much as there's that ambition, there's also kind of the historical but it's a fascinating region and it is very difficult to sort of we'll quite often say oh, we'll do a piece on latin america and then she's really difficult to do a standard piece because it is such a fragmented market i mean the demand recovery story in latin america is really strong especially those countries which lifted and in fact in some cases didn't have any restrictions at all someone like mexico has been a really strong growth story through the pandemic and you know you are seeing very strong pickup in demand in that region 
But, you know, each country has have had their own issues. And it was quite an interesting, you know, message that kept coming back through the event, I think, when people I spoke to, was actually just getting back to where we were before isn't enough because that was still underselling the potential for air travel in that region. And I don't think it was a single press conference, a single presentation that didn't mention the low per capita number of flights <laughs> that people are taking that region. So there's a huge potential there, but it is, it's very difficult to unlock. It is, yeah, because, you know, bus travel is a huge thing. I don't really have, in a lot of countries, the, the kind of railway networks, for example, that maybe we might see in Europe. So bus travel is a huge thing. That can be expensive. Like you say, any uh, most airline CEOs you talk to there, they cite that per capita travel, which is much lower than you'd see in, in North America or Europe, you know, reflecting the huge potential. But there, there is a sort of move, isn't there, in the case of, um, of Gold and Avianca to maybe a, mature the industry a bit. What you're looking at is seeing ways to get some scale in that. I mean, that's um, coming together of, of Tam in Brazil and LAN. That is probably the broadest pan Latin American airline group there. And this Abra concept, which is kind of, you know, which we are seeing is, is essentially the IAG model, isn't it? It's the holding holding company where you keep these individual brands in there, which you, which you need to retain traffic rights, to retain, you know, in a, a, in a, in a market which is still fragmented. So where airlines today, you know, in the low-cost sector, you know, someone like JetSmart, they have an operation in Argentina, but that's its own Argentinian operation. That's, you know, LATAM's made up of about 20 <laughs> different, 20, so you have this, this difficult thing with, with Abra, this idea of getting Avianca uh, together, uh, with Gold is the big, big other carrier, but you have, uh, you know, the potential of getting a couple of the operations from Beaver Group, there was some talk about uh, it, which remains a possibility, which is uh, the Chilean carrier Sky, so, you know, the idea of then creating a group which might actually then with their own independent brands and they, they obviously was, they're still quite early in this process they're not really talking about exactly how that would work but this idea that you would then have a group which could actually um measure up to to latin yeah curiously i think Abra is a uk-based <laughs> company well, well, yes, so, yeah so maybe we'll be covering that region much more closely um but yeah no you're right it is um is it, it'd be interesting to see how it develops like you say retaining those individual brands in a way that Perhaps Latam hasn't done to, to that extent, um, although it still flies, mm. I guess, some TAM branded aircraft. But yeah, yeah, it's a really uh, interesting development, bringing together slightly different business models. Obviously, Avianca, as, as uh, during COVID, has been shifting more sort of away away from that sort of more network carriers and more point to point anyway. So the goal is obviously very much a low cost carrier. So it's so really interesting to see how that develops and perhaps by its nature, it's a cross border Colombia, Brazil operation. So yeah. Um, maybe that will have to mature that market and overcome some of those challenges. Thank you, Lewis. I think that will do for this time. Cheers, Graham. So that's all we have time for. As a reminder, you can find links to the stories we've referenced in the podcast notes. And as ever, you can keep up to date with the latest stories across the industry at flightglobal.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And we'll see you again next time.